there's a path that life has in mind for you. There's, there's a path that you're going to go to, go through. And your life is going to take you that way whether you want to go there or not. And the trick is to keep your eyes open to the opportunities that life is presenting to you. you know, you've got to have goals and you've got to have a vision of where you want to go. But you can't become so myopic that you ignore and reject out of hand other opportunities because it doesn't fit with what you think you want. Plan to fail so you won't. Production will solve all your problems. Some will, some won't. Stop whining, so what? Just hit your weekly production goal. The weekend starts now. Our podcast this week is sponsored by the Life Insurers Council. The LIC is the only organization that provides a forum for senior-level life insurance executives, primarily from small to medium-sized companies, to exchange information and ideas across all functional areas where shared excellence improves business for all participants. For more than a century, the LIC's mission has been to provide practical business solutions to companies serving the modest and middle-income market. Consequently, the LIC has had traditional ties to many home service, pre-need, and final expense insurance companies, as well as niche market companies selling small face amount life products through a variety of distribution channels. In addition, the LIC provides exceptional value for smaller companies and fraternal benefit societies who are looking for a single resource for comprehensive services that are delivered through more intimate, customized programs. This is achieved through a variety of conferences and workshops, committees and webinars, research and surveys, and by leveraging our relationship with LOMA and LIMRA. We invite you to consider sponsorship at the Life Insurance Council. There's no better place for you to build strong relationships over time with a targeted group interested in your company's products and services. Our podcast this week is with Jeff Shaw. Jeff has served as the Executive Director of the Life Insurance Council since March of 2008. The LIC is a council of LOMA and is also part of LIMRA. The LIC focuses on providing resources to serve the unique needs of smaller life insurance companies. Their mission is to help companies improve performance through shared excellence by facilitating networking opportunities for members to share best practices. Prior to that, Jeff was Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of Unity Mutual Life Insurance Company. At various times during his 15-year tenure with the company, Jeff was responsible for home service, pre-need, final expense, and annuity marketing programs. The first half of Jeff's career was spent selling insurance products, first with a family-owned property casualty agency, and later as a registered representative for Mass Mutual. A graduate of Lemoyne College with a degree in multiple science, physics, Jeff lives in Syracuse, New York. Welcome, Jeff Shaw. Let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, and uh, like, what did your parents do? How was your childhood? Uh, I grew up. I was uh, born and raised in Syracuse, New York, which is in upstate New York, about four hours from uh, New York City, and. Um, I haven't moved very far. I actually bought my parents' house, so I still live in uh, the same house I grew up in. We have a lot of the same neighbors that remember me uh, 
breaking their windows and <laughs> doing minor vandalism when I was growing up. They finally have come to accept me as one of their neighbors. Um, I, uh, my, my dad was a property and casualty insurance agent and um, actually ended up, that's how I got into the insurance business, I ended up working with him. have uh, um, uh, two brothers and two sisters that are kind of spread out around, uh, around the country. And um, pretty much it. Um, I've come, I will say one thing. I've come to have a greater appreciation for Syracuse uh, with the current job that I've had. With the job I have now, I get to travel all over the country. Um, I go to a lot of smaller cities where a lot of um, I remember life insurance companies are located. And uh, for most of my life, I was like that guy from It's a Wonderful Life. I just could not wait to get out of Syracuse and Every time I thought I had a chance to do it, something would happen that would keep me here. And uh, now that I'm older and I've traveled a lot more, I have a really, I have a great appreciation for it. You know, there's some, some great cities out there that I've been to, uh, but all the great cities are expensive. There's a lot of traffic, and it's just complicated. Just going to the grocery store or if you want to go out on a Friday night for dinner, you've got a plan on traffic and reservations and uh, you might not even be able to get in, whereas Syracuse, I'm sure it's a lot like Hayes, Kansas. You know, there's parks you can go to, there's good restaurants, not a lot of traffic. It's inexpensive to live here. It's a really, it's a great place to live. And if you want to go and visit one of those great cities, we're four hours from Boston, Toronto, Montreal, Philadelphia, New York City, uh, any place you would want to go, I can go there for a night or a weekend and not have to deal with all the expense and inconvenience of living there. So... I'll stay. I'll stick to Syracuse. The only thing is, you got to make sure your snowblower works well because we don't have to deal with fifty to hundred inches of snow. Yeah, no, that's a real good point, and that was that's that's the one thing that uh, took me a long time to come to grips with. Because uh, you're right, our weather is horrible. It's not just the snow; uh, it, it's just we get a lot of rain. We're one of the cloudier cities in the country. And uh, that can get really depressing. And for a while, it really bothered me. I mean, I would you, you you drive an hour south, and the sun is shining. It's like you're in a whole different uh, different uh, state. And then you'd come back home. I'd come back home in the evening, and it's raining or cloudy. And it's like, why am I doing this to myself? But, you know, as I get older again, the weather just doesn't seem to affect me as much as it, as it used to. You know, you go out if you want to go and do something. Uh, you don't worry if it's snowing or raining. You just go and do it. Uh, I want to dig into to what you do now and stuff, but uh, going back, you said your dad was a, a property and casualty agent. How did uh, how did that affect you in wanting to get into the insurance business? And and how did uh, you know? Tell us the story of how you you got into doing insurance. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, Tucker, because actually, you know, growing up, I was not very enamored with my dad's choice of career. Um, he put in a lot of hours. Um, he's, he was the consummate, the old school insurance agent. And uh, since it was property and casualty, every year he would go out and visit with his customers when their um, policies renewed to make sure that the coverage was up to date, to make sure they understood it. And he developed really close personal relationships with his policyholders. Um, he, they would have him come for dinner, um, but it meant you know a lot of long hours. So when I was growing up, um, he wasn't always around um, to the extent that I would have liked to have him, liked him to have been. 
Um, I actually um, graduated from college with a degree in, in physics, and I wanted to uh, be a teacher. So I taught high school math and science when I first got out. But I got married young and had a couple of kids. I had two kids by the time I got out of college, and I was working nights unloading trucks at UPS to support my family while I was in college. And I started working at a, teaching at a parochial school, which didn't really pay very much. So I kept the part-time job unloading trucks at night, and it was just a brutal schedule. I would get up early, I'd teach all day, then I'd coach soccer, and then I'd come home and have dinner, and then I'd go back out and I'd unload trucks until 2 or 3 in the morning and get up and do the same thing the next day. And it was just exhausting, and I really wasn't... Um, effective at anything I was doing to the extent I would have liked to. So I think like most people, um, I think, Tucker, you're an exception because your dad is an unusual guy. Um, like most people, I ended up going into the insurance business because I didn't really have a lot of other options, quite frankly. Um, I was able at that time to go and work with my dad and make the same amount of money working uh, less hours than I was working all those other jobs and just killing myself. And I will say, um, as you know, Tucker, working with your dad, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is I got to see another side of my father that nobody else in the family really knew, even my mom, as well as obviously she knew him. I really saw that professional persona. I saw the way my father treated his policyholders, the way they respected him. I saw his integrity and the way that he dealt with them and the way he stood up for them with the insurance companies. And I got to, I really learned a lot from him. His selling style was, had a great impact on me. It was all educational. He, he didn't sell anything. He had all of these stories to explain the different forms of coverage on a property and casualty house, whether it's car insurance or house insurance or business insurance. And I learned really quickly to just kind of parrot his stories almost word for word because they were just really effective. They were non-threatening and they were very informative and they allowed people to really feel that they had a sense of control over their um, their insurance and their business. So in any event, it worked out to be just fantastic for me. I was with him for almost seven years and I really enjoyed having that opportunity. You might talk a little bit, because um, I struggled with this. Um, I, I did the same thing. Like, uh, I would parrot my dad's stories, um, but I had a hard time in, in making them my own. Did you run into any of that, or um, how did you kind of make those stories your stories without, um, you know, saying that, you know, the, these are my dad's agents or some, or clients, I mean, but... You know, did you have any trouble with that? You know, that's a great question, too. So most of the stories that I took from him were descriptive in terms of how do you explain and contrast the different forms of coverage so people can make a decision. And for those, I pretty much took word for word because they were descriptive and illustrative. They weren't personal. Um, what I did, though, to make this my own um, – at the time, uh, my wife at that time was very much into horses, and um, so I developed a niche um, with um, um, horse stables. So I actually ended up, I, I, I learned, I, I found a company that had a really good package policy for horse stables, and I went out and visited their home office and learned all of the details behind how they rated the policies and, you know, the things that affected uh, the pricing and what they look for in terms of risk assessment. 
And I would bring my wife. We would do all these direct mail campaigns, and I'd bring my wife out with me, and uh, we would visit these farms all over the um, all over the state in New York. And um, she would spend half the time talking to them about horses, and they would be they would really bond over that. And then I would come in and start talking about the insurance. So it really worked well. It gave my wife and I time to spend together. It um, gave her um, an ability to get involved in my business. It opened up a whole new niche for me. Um, and then we expanded that into dairy farms, and that was kind of interesting, too. I took a page out of my dad's book, and when the dairy farms, when their insurance renewed every year, I would go out at 4 in the morning and do chores with them and then go over their insurance policies over breakfast. And I felt that if I'm really going to understand and recommend the proper coverage for them, I need to understand what their business is like. And so it was a great learning curve for me, and it made me a lot more effective. So those are some of the things that I did. I kind of took my dad's illustrative stories and then used that to carve out some niches for myself. That's awesome. That's so cool. Uh, do you have any uh, particular story that sticks in your mind on, on something that happened? on one of these early mornings on a on a farm when you're just trying to earn some more business? Yeah, I remember this one. Uh, I went, so there was this uh, this one farmer. I, we'd been, I'd known him for quite a while, and um, I went out. We did all the chores, and then um, he had a side business where he did artificial insemination, and he was going out to a farm to inseminate a cow, and he asked me if I wanted to go along. And... I don't know how to explain this. I hope you guys, uh, you're in haste, so you probably this probably isn't going to be as surprising to you um, as it was to me. But I didn't realize that part of the process was putting this rubber glove on that went from fingertip up to your shoulder and basically reaching in through the cow's anus to uh, with one hand while having this very, very long syringe that he inserted into the cow's vagina so he could feel with the one hand where the syringe was going to make sure that it was actually going into the right place. So he's basically got his ear pressed up against the backside of this cow with one hand, one arm almost totally immersed into it with the other one kind of feeling around with the syringe. So that was... that left quite a lasting impression on me, I will say. So he didn't have you do this? <laughs> <laughs> if he did, I blocked that part <laughs> out. <laughs> and I think you, you said it perfectly because I, I kind of knew what was coming, uh, but did you have any you know experience uh, with farms or any? I mean, I can just imagine what upstate New York looks like. I've never been there, but uh, with how you grew up did you have any farm experience at all no 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 i grew up in a suburb um i i wasn't really very good around horses either <laughs> i mean um, i was just looking for a niche but i was uh um uh, i could fake it pretty well um and i did find it very interesting i mean dairy farmers a really really hard way to make a living you are just married to those cows you can't get away at all and your whole world, basically, because of the rich diet that they give the cows, is, is you're just constantly covered with, um, with manure and urine and, and, and mud and dirt. And, and there's such a strong um, genetic aspect to this that I didn't know about with the artificial insemination. Now, they're just constantly looking to improve 
the structure of the cow and the milk, the fat content in the milk. And uh, there's a real art and a science to this, in, in addition to just grunt work of physically going out and doing this um, a couple of times a day. As far as um, when you were making the transition to insurance, did you have any uh, worries or uh, misgivings about having a steady paycheck to going to commission or uh, was, you know, having your dad in the business, did that make that transition a little easier? Uh, So with my dad, um, it was, uh, I had a salary. um, And since it was property and casualty, you know, it's very different. People need property and casualty insurance. So you don't have to create a need for it. They, they recognize they got to get home insurance and they got to get car insurance. And we had no interest in selling life insurance or financial products. We were strictly property and casualty. So that was really comfortable. I left. Uh, my brother-in-law actually came in and started working with us as well a couple of years later. And at that time, the business wasn't really large enough to support both of us. Um, so my brother-in-law ended up buying the business from my dad, and I left, and I started at Mass Mutual. And I remember when I started at Mass Mutual, when I was interviewing there, one of the first questions they asked me was how well I dealt with rejection. And I'll never forget, I was, like, really taken aback by that question. It was like, what do you mean? I mean, you don't, you don't experience rejection selling property and casualty insurance because, I mean, if you've got a good price, um, People went with you. If you didn't, they went with somebody that had a better price. I mean, I didn't, I, it was certainly nothing personal. Um, and then, so anyway, starting at Mass Mutual, selling life insurance and financial products, which people don't want, getting rejected, finding all of a sudden I was a pariah that nobody wanted to talk to, whereas when I was selling car insurance, people would refer me to their friends all the time. And then working strictly on commission, and at that time I think I had four or five kids, and um, uh, my wife was going had, had, was going to school, so she was a, a full-time, part-time college student, and uh, it was brutal, absolutely brutal. I have such a great appreciation for having a steady paycheck, having benefits, having paid vacation, time off, all of that stuff. Um, I, it made a lasting impression on me anyway. Um what you guys do, my head is off to you. I wasn't good at it. I left at Mass Mutual after seven years and went into a, a home office. And don't let anybody kid you. Anybody that's any good at what you guys do doesn't go into the home office. <laughs> that's for people like me that just couldn't cut it out in the field. I admit it freely. Yeah, we talked to a, a guy last week that uh, works in the home office and uh, used to be an agent. And one of my questions was, so when are you going to be an agent again? He goes, you know what? It's crossed my mind because I don't know about this home office stuff anymore. So <laughs> um, so what do you do now uh, if you, say, run into an old high school classmate or, or you're at a um, a cocktail party or something, and you run into somebody you haven't seen in a while, and they say, hey, Jeff, what do you do nowadays anyway? How do you answer that? Well, generally, I give them an answer that nobody understands. Um, I, don't, I don't usually want to talk a lot about uh, what I do at a cocktail party with my friends. I just tell them I run a trade association for small life insurance companies. But what there was that, that step in between. So when I left 
Mass Mutual, I went into a home office, and I didn't know anything about working in a home office at all. I, I went in with a small company in New York State called Unity Mutual, and um, how I got the job there was actually was kind of interesting. The, um, the Mannion family had been, um, Jack Mannion was the chairman, and his son Patrick was the chief operating officer of Unity, and he had another, he had a brother, uh, Terry Mannion, that was uh, a client of mine when I was at Mass Mutual. And I was trying to get to know his dad um, because he was, you know, very prominent and was uh, perceived to be a wealthy person in Syracuse, and I wanted us open to sell him second-to-die insurance or do some estate planning for him. So um, I got very fortunate because um, I was referred to them by um, uh, his son, Terry, and just on the basis of that referral, they uh, they took a chance on me. I didn't know anything about being in a home office. I didn't even know what I was going to do the first day I showed up. But I was there for 15 years, and the company sold uh, annuities, final expense insurance, um, home service, uh, pre-need, uh, a bunch of other products. So I got a broad level of experience, and I worked my, up, my way up to be a senior officer and a, a chief marketing officer. I, I tell you that just as a way to kind of lay the groundwork. When I left there, I had an opportunity to come and be the executive director of the Life Insurers Council, which is what I do now. And the LIC was uh, it's an, a trade association that's been around for a long time. It was primarily for the old debit home service companies, mostly family-owned companies in the South, um, <clears throat> went door-to-door selling insurance, collecting premiums every month. And um, it was primarily just kind of a a benefit for these family members to kind of have excuses to go on really lavish conventions and take their families to New York City in December to go Christmas shopping and things like that. And I've always said I really wish I had been the executive director of the organization when uh, they did that. But by the time I came on board, there weren't very many home service companies left anymore. And so there was a real question as to what purpose really does the LIC serve? And at that time, they had merged with another two large international trade associations, LOMA and LIMRA, who are very prominent. Um, pretty much every large life insurance company in the world is a member of, of LOMA and LIMRA. So the LIC was kind of this little tiny bubble um, council of, of Loma, and the question that they put to me when I first started was, you better figure out if there's a purpose for this and make it work financially, we'll give you three years, or we're going to revisit this conversation. And we found a really nice niche for smaller companies. We found that our parent organizations, as, as amazing as they are with the, the breadth of the, the knowledge and the, the resources that they make available, they were all really geared towards the industry giants because they're the ones that paid the bulk of the dues. And there's a ton of these really small companies that sell niche products. They were kind of being left by the wayside. They had different challenges and really required different solutions that nobody was paying any attention to. And the fact that my background was working for one of those companies that sold a lot of those niche products, it just really ideally suited me to kind of step into this role 
and start creating resources for companies that were like the ones that I used to work for. And so that's a really long answer to what I do. That's not the one that I usually give to people at a cocktail party, but it's something that um, you guys can identify because you also work in conjunction with a lot of those smaller companies. So you know what I'm talking about. No, that's perfect. And uh, I, I wanted to dig in a little bit on uh, on Unity. Um, I'm curious about how you went from no experience. They kind of gave you a job and to spending 15 years there. It seems like a, a black and white night and day shift to, to say, hey, this, this guy with no experience, but, you know, he's been here for 15 years and doing a great job for us. So what was that like? Well, that's, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, in answering that question, um, this is going to sound uh, probably a little arrogant, and I don't mean it to be that way. But one of the things that I've learned is, you know, in in, um, in business, in marketing and sales, for example, there, there's like two kinds of people. There's people that I call builders and people that I call caretakers. And there's a lot of people that are really good caretakers, and that if you give them an established business and ask them to grow it and take care of it, they do a great job with that. But there's a few people that you can give them, you give them a blank piece of paper and say, okay, um, we want to get into this business or, you know, we want to sell this product or we don't even know what we want to sell. Figure something out. Go and build something. Create something out of nothing and, and let's see where, where we can take that. And that's something that I realized in my career, I'm, I'm good at doing that. Even when I started in my dad's property and casualty business, coming up with that idea of doing farms and horse stables and doing the direct mail, figuring out how to communicate with them, all the things that I did, finding a company, I built this business around nothing that, that didn't exist before when I was 20, 21 years old. Horrible at selling life insurance. I freely admit that. But when I started at Unity, the first task they gave me was to build their annuity business. It had kind of been languishing a little bit, and so I used those same tactics. Identified a bunch of brokers in, uh, in New York, went out on the road, did direct mail, developed different products and services that I thought would appeal to them to try to help us differentiate from our competition, and we built that business up uh, to – it was um, – for for Unity World, it was uh, it was a very substantial business, and um, it was one state. We were a B-rated company competing against a lot of large companies, and we were able to do that. So, successively through my time at Unity Mutual, there were opportunities where they gave me a piece of paper and said, "Go and figure something out." And I really enjoyed doing that. And the LIC has been a complete continuation of that. It's just as I said, what's the purpose of this business? Doesn't make any sense. Figure it out and make it financially viable, and then we'll talk. And that's exactly what I've done. So that's kind of, I think, why Unity was such a good place for me. I had 15 years of having, for me, the way I looked at it was every opportunity and challenge that I had at Unity had three more zeros on the end of it than I had when I was working as an agent because everything is bigger. It's a bigger it's a bigger uh, uh, bucket that you're dealing with, bigger opportunities. Um, you've got more money backing you, more resources you can tap into. Um, so I was able to leverage that. When I was, when you're an insurance agent, you know, it's just you. You're just out there one-on-one -on -one knocking on doors. And um, um, 
that I can't do. But you give me a blank piece of paper and some resources and uh, some, some money to work with, and I can build something. Do you feel that, uh, you know, you, you got your degree in physics, and I can't even imagine uh, going to the 101 classes in physics, but do you think that uh, your college experience had anything to do with uh, the success you've had? Well, I, um, um, I wouldn't say my college experience because um, I barely made it through. As I said, I, was, I had a couple of kids, and I was working nights, I went to class sporadically. I barely got through college. I, I got my degree, but it was by the skin of my teeth. So it wasn't a really great, vibrant, typical experience. But I will say that the the, the, the mindset, the things that makes um, that made physics still makes physics. I'm still very interested in it, and my comfort with math and analytics and things like that. Um, has certainly paid um, has helped me a lot in my career. I, um, you know, I I like to think I still have that that creative side that you have to have to do marketing, and the personal side that you have to do to, to do sales to interact with people and and genuinely be interested in what people have to tell you, get them to talk, just like what you're doing with me today. You know, um, that's a real good skill. But I, I also really enjoy crunching numbers. I believe in data. One of the reasons why I think that I've been successful in my business career is because I, I really try hard to rely on facts, and I'm big big believer in data. I don't want to make decisions based on my intuition or hunches. I want to make my decisions based upon things that I can quantify. Um, and I, I'm a huge believer in strategic planning. Um, with my board of directors, every two to three years, we, we go off-site for a day and a half with an outside facilitator and do an extensive um, assessment of what is our strategy, what is our mission, what is our vision, how are we going to meet that, how can we measure that, is it time to change any of that, is, is it changing, is it working, and all of those, that kind of anal attention to detail that kind of drives you into a, a science, I think has also helped me a lot in business. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast at one time. They talked about um, IQ and EQ, and uh, the the guys that have the the super super high IQ have little to no EQ. You know, they can't even relate to other people. EQ is emotional quotient. You know, and then the exact opposite. If you have a super high EQ, um, then uh, typically your IQ isn't quite as high. Um, but, uh, some of the most successful people have this perfect balance, uh, you know, between the two, N neither one is super high and it, it allows them to be, to be very, very successful. So I don't know. I found that interesting, but it seems like that's you, you've got a, a perfect balance on, on both of them. I've read about that. Actually, that's a, it's an interesting point. I, I, uh, I appreciate your um, your compliment. I'm not sure if I agree. I will say one thing that kind of in that same context that I think is really important is um, your belief in yourself. Um, I'll, I'll tell you another story that um, I'm very proud of. When I left Unity Mutual, um, I didn't have another job lined up. And I had nine months of severance, and it took me 14 months to get this job. And when I left, I had a really high opinion of myself. I, 
I was a senior officer, as you said. I didn't know anything, and I worked my way up to a prominent position, and I felt really confident in terms of my skill set and my business ability. And I thought, sure, I was going to walk out that door, and I was going to get snapped up right away because I'm sure the whole world's got to know how great I was, right? And look at what I'd done. And so I was shocked to walk out of there and find, you know, I had no network in terms of people that could hire me. My network was only agents that we had worked with. What year um, is this? You no, know, this was 2007, so it was right before the crash. Um, fortunately, it was before it. I, the timing was really good. But I, so I walked out of there, and, you know, I, I started uh, I, I, a couple of job offers came my way, but they were much lower than what I was doing, you know, like regional vice president or field representative, you know, just, you know, very much lower-level positions, um, more along the lines of what I had first started at when I was at Union Mutual. I turned them down. And a number of people, my friends in particular, were telling me, Jeff, you're crazy, you know. You, you've got you to support your family. You've got to, whether you think that these jobs are beneath you or not, you've got to take these jobs. And I kept saying, no, I'm better than that. I know that there's something better out there for me. Um, um, and then when the severance ran out, it became harder and harder to turn those jobs down. And, um, and I did. And kind of funny, I, I got a job offer from a company in Baltimore, and it was, it was still lower than where I was at before, but it was, it was getting closer to that range. I wasn't going to relocate. I was really making this decision of driving six hours to Baltimore and getting an apartment down there and then coming back home um, because I, we needed the money. And right around that time is when this, um, this offer came to interview for the LIC position. And it was just one of those great things. I mean, for, for, I was really – it's one of those things, those stories in life where it, it could have been a disaster and I could be telling you about what an idiot I was and how I made these bad decisions. But when things work out in life, <laughs> you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I was brilliant. I was Because was, everything worked out great. And it did in this case, but I will say I was, I was, I was happy. I talked to my kids about this. It's like, you know – You've got to believe in yourself. You, you've got to believe that there's a purpose in your life, that, there, that you're destined for things, um, that, that the things that happen in your life are, um, um, weren't for just by accident, that there's a reason for it. And uh, in this particular case, um, I actually turned down that other job before I even knew if I had this job or not. Um, so, again, in hindsight, everything worked out great, and I can, you know, I can feel, you know, I wanted to. I could say, yeah, you know, I, how smart that was. So that, but I didn't have any idea, and it could have easily have turned out the other way. And, you know, that job that I, if I had taken a job in Baltimore, I could have been in a whole different position way better than where I am now. So I guess the only point I want to make about that, just kind of in response to what you had said, Tucker, is I think two things are really important in, in life and in a career. And one of them is really having that strong belief in yourself and the second is being willing to fail and not looking at that as a failure, looking at that as just the normal course of what you've got to go through in life. It's, it can't all be ups. You've got to have the downs, too. That's, where, unfortunately, where the, the best learning generally comes from, where 
you you are tested. You, that's when you find out who you really are. It's it's really easy to be kind and generous and considerate of people when you're doing really well. It's really hard to not be a jerk when you, everything's falling apart around you. Sure. Oh, I totally get it. Um, just to to dig in on a little detail, what was the job hunt like then? Like um, nowadays, I would imagine people would use Monster.com or LinkedIn or something to try to to get interviews. Uh, were you just calling companies or what did the, the nitty gritty look like? Um, yeah, it was different. I mean, now um, it's kind of funny. I, hear, I talk to a lot of people now that when they're looking for work, one of the first things they do is they uh, they get certified as an Uber driver, and they hang out around the companies that they want to get a job at, expecting that, you know, as they're driving these people to the airport and picking them up and taking them places, they can develop a network that way. But back then, basically, I would go on. Um, I got into a routine. Every Monday morning, I would, um, I would check the paper um, on Sunday, um, different papers. I would go down and get some around the head because, again, I didn't want to relocate. And then I would spend a couple hours on the Internet looking at different company websites where they would post um, different positions. I had a couple of uh, headhunters that I would then reach out to. So I had, like, this weekly routine for a couple of hours on Monday. But, after you know, after you do that for a couple of months, you realize that, you know, there's really not a point in doing that every day. So I didn't adopt uh, this was my full-time job trying to find a job. Um, what I did the rest of the week, um, I, uh, I built a new kitchen. I, uh, I learned how to build uh, kitchen cabinets, and I spent uh, most of that year in my garage um, building the kitchen for my wife, which um, was very satisfying to me. It's something I don't – it was a bigger, big enough project. I don't think I could have done it if I were working and just having the weekends to work on it. And um, so I would spend a couple hours on Monday doing my job search, and I would spend the rest of the week working on my uh, on building the kitchen cabinets. That's awesome. I I realize we're bouncing around a little bit here, but uh, what does a, a typical day look like for you at the LIC? What do you do on a daily basis? Um, well, the typical day generally is traveling, um, and there's um, there's two types of travel that I do. Um, we put on a lot of meetings, so um, I might be, and they're often hosted, generally hosted by one of our member companies. So I'll fly out to a city, and um, we'll have a bunch of people come in, and um, those are a lot of work. It's like it's like um, when you guys have your agents come in. You know, you got to be on the whole time. You're you're engaged with people. You're listening. Um, the meeting goes all day, then you're taking all these people out to dinner and you're out late at night and then you got to do the same thing. So that's probably half of the travel. The other half is um, out visiting our member companies or um, trying to recruit prospective new company members. And uh, those, are, those are a lot more fun. I'll generally set up a meeting. I'll, I'll fly somewhere and um, drive four hours have a meeting the next day at 10 o'clock and then another one at 2 o'clock, drive another four hours to another city and where I've got a couple of meetings set up and kind of do a big loop for a couple of days and then fly back. And I enjoy that. I really enjoy meeting with new companies, and I enjoy meeting with the companies. I, it's kind of like with my dad's P&C business. I know intimately the senior people at all of the companies that are members of the LIC. I know them very well. We're friends now. Um, I see them on a regular basis, just like 
just like my dad did with his policyholders. And uh, it's very enjoyable to go and spend time with them. And I enjoy visiting with new companies because it's just so much that you learn about what their new challenges are. I love visiting home offices. Everyone is a little different. It gives you a real sense for um, what their their culture is and what their priorities are. And then for so that's probably about two to about three weeks out of the month I'm on the road. And uh, the week that I'm in the office. Um, I spend a lot of time um, uh, right now. I'm, we, we do uh, some research reports, and I'm doing a lot of number crunching now on some data that our members have given us. And I've got writing up the reports. Um, I write articles for our newsletter. Um, a lot of emails, <laughs> um, a lot of conference calls, and then all the work I mentioned already with my board. So that's pretty typical. It's, it's a great job. A lot of it is just flying, flying to different cities. Eating in nice restaurants and staying in nice hotels, um, and, and talking to nice people. Yeah, sounds rough. Um, what? <laughs> whether I'm a new new company uh, to the LIC or one of your current ones, what does that uh, conversation look like? Um, you know, say I'm a new company. Why should I join the LIC, and when? What do you guys do for me? Yeah, that's another great question. Here's my elevator pitch. Um, and this works really, really well. Um, and this kind of came out of the, um, our recognition of our, of our new mission and vision statement that we developed two years ago. So generally, um, every small company has a list of 10 things they've been trying to get to for a couple of years. And these are generally not groundbreaking, innovative things. They're more fundamental things that most of the big companies took care of already. Uh, every company's list is different, and every, prior, every company's priorities are different. But when they're ready to move on any one of those items and finally get to check it off, it's really valuable for them if they can reach out to a network of similar companies and say, we're thinking of doing this. How did you guys do it? And get immediate feedback companies say, yeah, we did it this way, we did it in-house, we went with this vendor, uh, we tried this, it didn't work, don't do that, or here's a couple of things that we learned that, that we would do differently. So if, if we can flatten that learning curve, whatever it is a company wants to move forward on so that they can be more efficient and quicker on getting it done, that's really valuable for them. And when I tell that story to any senior person at a small life insurance company, their heads are always nodding. They totally get what I'm saying. And for us as an organization, it becomes clear for us, our job is to create a network and a forum that makes it easy for our member companies, no matter what area of the company they're in, whether it's operations or marketing or actuarial or technology or even the CEO, um, you name it. So they can reach out to this network of their peers and have real-time feedback with stuff that they want to know about. And so that's, that's our mission, and that's what we build this business around. And everybody that I talk to gets it. And when they come to our meetings and they see the way people react and the good information that they get, really, they join. We kind of have a, a rule of thumb at the LIC. We're always inviting non-members to come to our meetings for free because we know nine out of ten times – they join because it is that valuable. This really is something that uh, really works for them. So it's a win-win for everybody. So I've only been to one of one of your meetings. 
Um, and I was floored, uh, basically because you have, um, a huge group of people in a room of competitors who are really willing to help each other out. And I remember, you know, talking with my dad after we left going, how does he do this? It doesn't make any sense. Why would competitors be so willing to not only help each other out, but pay for the opportunity to do so? It yeah, seems a, wrong. I agree. And that's not me. I wish I could take credit for it. I think there's two things that, that help make that happen. And I agree with you. It is, I'm, I'm blown away, too. When I sit in their meetings and I watch the way how, 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 how readily willing they are to help their competitors and their, and their peers. Um, I think part of it is, first of all, when you're dealing with smaller companies, their market share is limited by primarily by other things besides competition. They may not be in there. They may be limited by the number of states they're in. They may have only so much capital to support so much business. You know, bigger companies don't share like that because they're competing head to head. They want as much market share as they possibly can get. Smaller companies have different things holding them back. And the second thing that really helps is you know, we, we have we have a, a network so they can they can engage with each other from their offices. We have a special website where there's forums that they can post questions and everything. But what really makes it work is when we get them to come to our meetings, there's an awful lot of open discussion and we also always have dinners and cocktail receptions. So we give them a lot of time to get to know each other. Um, that's a huge part of all of our meetings. Um, Eating and drinking, people will tell us that the dinners is, are in some ways are more valuable than the actual meeting because of the relationships that they develop. But that's the second key. You know, when, when, when your competitor is somebody you become friends with and you know about their, their, their wife and their kids and where they live and what's important to them and you guys have a friendship, you know, if they ask for your help, yeah, to what you know, to whatever extent you're able to, without violating any um, any uh, professional confidentiality, of course you're going to do that because you know it's your friend. Well, I know one of the things, Jeff. I um, when we met, you asked me to speak there in Kansas City, which was one of the earlier final expense uh, meetings. I think there was probably it seemed like there was twenty or thirty companies represented there, and uh, I remember the discussions were were. A little short and not really wide open. Uh, it seemed like there was a lack of trust. And then um, I was in Dallas with you about a year ago, uh, coming up on a year ago, and there was probably twice as many companies there. And I was really intrigued with the interaction between all the companies and the people, whether it was in the meetings or at the dinners. Uh, so obviously what you're doing is working very, very well because I'm sure the first few meetings there was a, there was a trust factor involved to say, well, if I tell someone something, is it going to come back and bite me in the butt? And it seems like it hasn't because people were very, very open in Dallas last year about helping people and, and discussing the concerns they had. And like you said, they would, you know, people would ask questions, say, well, we tried that. It didn't work. Don't do that. You know, do it this way, and this has worked well for us. And so it's been really intriguing to watch the process also. Yeah, that's a, you're right. And it takes time for that comfort level and for those relationships to develop. And then the more time that goes on, the, and, and, and the more that you've got this core of people that are comfortable, then the more it makes other people uh, comfortable. It also depends on the makeup. You know, we've got, uh, we've got different committees for different areas. Um, like I know, like the marketing committee, 
the marketers are they're the ones that um, on the surface are least willing to share. They all feel that they know something that their competitors don't know, and they don't want anybody to figure it out. And they're, they, they, they tend to want to try to keep things close to their chest. And I keep telling them, you know, we have our operations committee, and those guys have no filter at all. So whatever secret the marketing people think that they're keeping from their competitors, the operations people are telling, they're just filling their guts about, they don't, they don't care because they're all dealing more with, uh, with, uh, with different challenges. But then we have, um, for example, uh, a, um, Enterprise Risk Management Commission, uh, Committee, and these are more actuarial, more uh, compliance people, and sometimes it's hard to get them to talk. Um, so every every group has kind of its own personality. We've actually tried. We tried to do a finance committee, and um, I gave up on it. I could not get them to engage. Um, more of a failure on my part. Uh, we tried to do it with a kickoff conference call, and all I heard was crickets on the other end of the phone. It was like it was exhausting for me to try to get any kind of a dialogue going. So, ah, the hell with that. I have better things to do. Um, so we haven't always been successful, but the, the makeup of the group certainly uh, is where the, the key to success lies. That's cool. So as far as it could be personal or business-wise or a mix of both, uh, what does goal setting look like for you? Um, you know, that's, that was um, a huge part of my life, um, really from the time I was, say, early 20s until early 50s. And I'm a huge believer in it. And I... I also believe in setting goals that seem unachievable. So not just – I was fine with not achieving every single goal that I set. In fact, I've told my kids many times, if whatever goals you pick for the year, if you accomplish them every single year, you're not, you're not pushing hard enough that – but the thing about goal setting that I think people forget, which is um, um, is unfortunate, is it, you can't you can't obsess over the accomplishment of the goal because all that means is once you accomplish one goal, you got to pick another one. You know, it's just it's a starting point for or an ending point to go on to something else. And I know it's a cliche, but that saying about life is a is a journey, not a destination. That's really the way I think you've got to look at picking goals, that it isn't at the end of the year whether you've actually accomplished that. It's really focusing on the enjoyment and the process of trying to get there and and not obsessing over do, do you actually have that, um, did you actually get that outcome. Um, the whole thing is about doing it, about being that, about living that. And um, and sometimes you know what you pick a goal that's too big, it may not it just may not be feasible. But if you work towards it all year, the the benefit that comes and the satisfaction of doing that that's what we should be enjoying. Not you know getting to December 31st and then looking back and saying, well I can check that off. That's good. Oh I didn't do that one, so I guess I failed. But that's just totally misses the boat. So I did find I would pick goals and. One of the things that I think is really important when you, if you're going to do a goal setting is you've got to tell people. I went around, and, and our family, every, uh, by um, early December, 
the conversation starts, what are your goals for the new year? What are your goals for the new year? What are you going to do? What are you going to do next year? What are your plans? What are you committing to? Uh, my youngest daughter blew me away. I got up January 1st um, last year. She had written her goals down on a big piece of poster board and taped them in the kitchen for everybody to see because she wanted us all to hold her accountable for the things that she said she was going to do. And she had the freedom to do that because she knew that none of us were going to, you know, at the end of the year, blame her or criticize her or tease her if she didn't accomplish them. We were there to help her uh, hold her commitment to the best that she could. So I think that's a really a good way to look at it. I found frequently I would pick goals. For example, I've written a couple of novels, and for many years that was one of my goals was to complete, you know, finish you know, whatever book I was working on. And that would often be on there for a year or two before I finally knuckled down and got it done. But it required a lot of discipline. And I remember the first time I did that, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going to have the time to do this. It's just not possible. But I've been saying I was going to do this for a couple of years. My credibility is at stake. Who's going to believe me if I – I mean, at some point, i got to make this happen. And um, I, I got in the habit of getting up at 4 in the morning every day and working on this thing and working on it and working on it. And I remember I kind of forgot about it. And July came along, and I pulled my goals out. They go, oh, yeah, I was going to finish this book this year. I'm almost done with it. I had completely forgotten because it had just become part of my normal routine for what I was doing. So, anyway, I really believe in the power of goal setting. I will say now that I'm older, um, uh, I, my kids are very uh, disappointed with me on this, but um, I just don't have the same motivation that I did when I was younger. I mean, I, I, I've had a number of the same goals on the list for, for many years, and they're, they're things that um, I've gotten to a point where I'm, I'm comfortable with the level that I've achieved, and I'm just not really as inclined to, to keep pushing to try to improve. Um, so I, I keep my eyes open trying to figure out what other goals would I like to have. And quite honestly, I look at my typical day and the way that my, my life is today, I'm doing all the things that I really want to do. Um, I, it isn't a matter of discipline anymore. I really enjoy the things that I'm doing, and, and I'm busy, and um, I'm happy and comfortable doing those things. That's awesome. Yeah, I, you sparked a whole bunch more questions now, but um, you said one thing about cliché, and I uh, – there's a quote I heard, I don't remember who said it, but, you know, if somebody says, I know this is a cliche, but you better listen up because there's a reason it's a cliche. It, it's very applicable. It's very true. And so um, that's something that I that I appreciate. But um, how, what are your kids' ages? How many kids do you have and what are their ages? Uh, we've got six kids. The oldest is um, – well, he was born in 79, so I guess that'd make him maybe 38. You know, you kind of forget. My youngest is 24. I know that. And uh, I got three girls and three boys. Um, so we, um, um, we're, we're a very close family. We, do, uh, we still do um, uh, Sunday dinner every week where we have, uh, man, it used to be when all the kids were home, we would have 25 people over. The uh, neighbors and um, friends and kids that have lived with us throughout the years, um, 
now we do Sunday dinner on Saturday just because um, our kids have kids and they have to get them ready for school Sunday night. So, um, but they still, um, we've got, um, I told you I, I bought my parents' house. I have a daughter that's pregnant with her fourth child and her husband, they live across the street from us. Um, I have a son with two children that lives um, in Syracuse about 15 minutes from our house. Uh, my 24-year-old just moved home from Australia. That was one of her goals that she wrote on that board was to go live in Australia for a year, and she just got back. Um, so she's living with us. And I have another daughter that lives with us with her husband and their three kids who is um, in grad school. And so they're kind of using the family house as a, as a springboard until she can get her uh, graduate degree and then uh, go back to a better job. That's awesome. Um, what... Now, this question, we always ask our agents when we have them together for uh, for a conference or something like that, and we go around the room and we say, you know, what are you passionate about? And we get all sorts of weird answers, like I'm passionate about selling insurance and I'm passionate about helping people. And we say, okay, you know, that's all fine and good, but other than your job, once you've hit your goal, you're done working for the week, uh, outside of work, what are you passionate about? What do you enjoy doing? Um, I have a bunch of things, <laughs> quite honestly, that I'm um, that are really important to me. Um, I've uh, I've been a, a, a runner my whole life. Um, I'm not good at it anymore, especially as I get older. I get slower and slower. Um, but I love running, and uh, I love running with my kids. Um, I trained for a marathon with one of my daughters, which was a great bonding experience. Um, I've trained for half marathons with a number of my kids. Um, I'm, I'm training for a, a, a nine-mile race um, in July with one of my daughters right now. And uh, so as long as I can keep running with them, um, even sometimes we just go to the gym and run on treadmills together because they're too fast for me. Uh, I really enjoy that. I, um, a couple of my kids are fluent in Spanish, and they have gotten me um, interested. Um, I've been studying Spanish for about the last 12 years, and I finally got to a point where I'm not even close to fluent, but I'm able to have um, good relationships with people that don't speak English, and uh, that's inspired. It's given me opportunities to go and travel. Um, I've got a lot of friends in Costa Rica in a very small town, and I've got some friends in Cuba um, that I've visited, and um, I'm very passionate about trying to maintain um, just just to maintain even the rudimentary level of Spanish that I have because I don't want to lose those relationships. I've played drums my whole life. Um, I played in bands all the time until I started in this job, and now because of the travel, I just can't do it anymore. But I still really am very passionate about drums and music. And then lastly, right now, this is what's driving what I do more than anything. My number one thing is I really love um, remodeling. And my house is this old house that I bought from my parents has become this pallet and I have turned my garage into a shop and I every weekend um, that's where I am I love and there's just a, there's no shortage of new techniques to learn new tools to master new things to try um, different material to work with um, with YouTube there's all kinds of really great instructional uh, information out there so um, I cannot wait to retire and just spend all day. I mentioned building those kitchen cabinets for my, my wife. That kind of started all of this off, and I am obsessed with 
just building stuff and doing remodeling projects. I just really, really enjoy it, and I find it mentally really captivating. I, I got this place in my head I can always go to if I'm sitting on a plane or driving in the car or even just going to bed at night. I can go to this little happy place in my head and think about whatever project I'm working on and kind of play through my head the different steps and the things I've got to do. And every time I do that, I think of something else that I hadn't thought of in terms of how to do it. And it's just uh, it's really satisfying. I just I can't can't say enough about it. I really enjoy it. Do you have any uh, – do you keep a notebook with you or anything like that to kind of capture these, um, you know, these ideas and thoughts so that you don't lose them by the time you get back to the garage? Um, I'll, I'll write notes. That's one thing, <laughs> one thing that uh, uh, Jim is always teasing me about. I always have a piece of paper on me, and I'm always taking notes. So that's kind of like my thing. Um, people – People tell me things all the time that I find really interesting, or they'll recommend a book or a movie, or they'll they'll say something, a quote, and I'll write those things down. And I have a um, like a, a document. I, I've been scanning them now into a, a directory on my computer, so that I have all of this stuff. It's easily searchable. Um, so yeah, I do. But it, there's been some interesting anecdotes that came out of that too. I'll give you an example. I had a. Uh, the foundation, the block foundation wall of my garage was being pushed in by the sidewalk. So the garage was at risk of, you know, really collapsing. And I had never really done any kind of block work at all. And so I decided I was going to replace the wall. And um, I um, took the sidewalk out. I dug down to the footers. Um, I took some big beams and put them underneath uh, the supports for the garage to try to hold them up. And I remember the first night I went to bed and I woke up in a cold sweat and I realized I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, this garage falls down while I'm trying to fix it. That really is going to be a bad thing. And I, I, it was, I was just wavering, you know, am I bitten off more than I can chew? It's just, am I, am I being stupid about this? Because I really don't know what I'm doing. Should I just hire somebody? And, um, you know, those moments of indecision. And I woke up the next day and I, did a little more research. I made some changes to the way I had things blocked off, and um, I spent the summer, and I did it. I pulled it off. It worked. Um, it's, been, it's only been three years, so it still could fall down. Um, <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes, but the nice thing about doing a block wall, you know, you, you cover it all up afterwards. So from the street, <laughs> I looked like I was a genius, you know. <laughs> But satisfying, you know, when you get into these things, and they're mentally and physically challenging, and then, like I said, you can look back with great satisfaction. That's awesome. You definitely inspire me, and I feel like uh, we're probably going to have to do a round two sometime because you're you're pretty inspiring, and uh, I'm learning a lot about you that I had no no idea about. But uh, one, of the, I, I have to mention, I have to jump in here, Jeff. Um, when you were in Ohio, Tucker was actually at that conference when you were in Ohio with us when I was speaking at Don's group. I remember coming up to me during a break. He goes, Dad, 
There's a guy in the back of the room who's got a StarTac phone on his belt. You know, because my, my StarTac <laughs> phone was my favorite phone. Of course, it had shelled out years before that. And I remember just that was something that jumped out at Tucker to see someone who had an old cell phone still using it. The antenna was all bent over. I remember I sent you parts from one of my old phones because the antenna was broken and stuff. And so that was something that jumped out at Tucker uh, about you sitting in the back of the room with your StarTac phone on your belt. That was so funny, Jim. I forgot about that. But, yeah, you and I were the diehards. And when you sent me that box of old parts and everything like that, man, you were my savior because I did not want to give up that phone. I really, really liked it. And uh, it uh, it took a leap of faith for me to get a smartphone. In fact, the only reason I got a smartphone is because I was reading articles about changing technology in the insurance industry, and I felt... You know, I needed to know what I was writing about. Um, otherwise, I probably would still be using that that phone. I would too if I could. We got to talk. <laughs> we got to talk about writing. Um, I I would love to write a book. Um, I don't know that I have the the time or the intestinal fortitude to do it. But um, and you write a lot of articles. Uh, have you always wanted to write? And I got to ask about your books, novels. Um, are they fiction, nonfiction? What did you write? Yeah, they were fiction, and um, I really, um, I did want to be a writer when I was younger. Um, I don't now. In fact, my my greatest point of pride, and I mean this sincerely, I have um, the nicest, most complimentary rejection letter from a publisher, and that's all I really wanted. It's not like I wanted to, I mean, I, I, would, I would not want to be a writer. I would not want to have to come up with a book or have to think about something that was actually going to be commercially viable. I just really enjoy the creative process. But I have, I have in black and white a letter from a publisher acknowledging that I have writing talent and that this book um, was, was very interesting. It didn't fit any particular genre. They didn't feel it was particularly marketable, but it was a job well done. And that's really all I wanted. So for, for me, the, the, the writing was just a creative process. And, and I, I, my process was this. I would try to capture the voice of whoever the main character was and try to remove myself from the writing process and just let this character tell their story through me and let it go wherever it went. And I'll give you an example that was kind of really cool. This, this, this one book that I was writing, the main character kept carrying this Super Bowl around, and it kept playing into the part where he would be bouncing it when he's talking to people, and they would, like, like get away from him, and he'd be, like, crawling on the floor throughout, like, in this restaurant trying to find this ball. And I was like, I had no idea why the character had the Super Bowl. So I started, I ended up, uh, my, my wife and kids kept getting me Super Bowls, and I would carry one around with me and do the same thing as the character because I was just trying to figure out what the point did this finally have. And when I finally got to writing the end of the book, because, again, I didn't know where the story was going to go, it turned out that that Super Bowl played the, the pivotal role in, like, the climax at the very end of the movie in a way I never anticipated. And it's, I'm, I'm not going to make more of that than it was. It's not like, you know, I tapped into some, you know, this voice of this character. It, it just was, was me, you know, like the way that my, my mind works. So there was nothing like mystical or, or it was just purely coincidental. Um, but that's a really good example of how I like to write, where it's just you throw something out there and then I would read it and say, that's horrible. It makes no sense. 
And then a couple of months later, I would write something that would all of a sudden put what I had written a couple of months before in context, where I could say, oh, yeah, those two things can go together. That's brilliant. I wish I would thought of that. Mm-hmm. You know, when I sit down and try to write a story, it's horrible. I just let it come out and then figure out how to put it together. It's really not bad. <laughs> That's cool. I, um, I wanted to ask about running. Um, do you find – you mentioned training for a race or training for a half marathon or something like that. Uh, do you notice a difference in running and then training for an event? Uh, there, there used to be. <laughs> you got to remember, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm almost 60, and I got arthritis, and um, uh, I'm not in the best shape that I, that, I, that I used to be. So for me, just going out and running really is a victory. And this is one of those things that I mentioned about goal setting. I mean, one of my goals every year consistently was to, you know, get faster in running and then increase distances and things like that. And honestly, I'm just grateful. Every time I go for a run, I wonder if it's the last time I'm physically going to be able to do it. And if I train too hard or too often, the outcome is I get hurt. I don't get better. I injure something. So it's this weird, you know, when, when I was your age, it's always no pain, no gain. I know you and your dad are really active in working out, and I miss those days. But um, my mental state now is different. It's like pain means possible injury, which means months of not being able to work out. So it's a whole different level of moderation. But if I am training for like a half marathon, you got to be able to run 13 miles. So my training is different because I'm going to be working more towards longer distances. Whereas if I'm not training for a longer race, um, I'm pretty content to run four to six, four to seven miles. That's, that's fine for me. Um, and I'm real comfortable doing that. Does running help your creative process? Oh, yeah. Um, do, do you run? Well, we do active things. So we don't run on a consistent basis, but we definitely run sometimes. Yeah, yeah I know you guys are active at the gym. Um, well, for me, anyway, yeah, running is it's, it's really hard to explain. But because a lot of people, you know, obviously running has the appearance of being monotonous. You go out for an hour and you're just running, but the, what happens is you, your body gets into this constant rhythm between your breathing and your arm movements and your leg movements, and you really get into the zone, and then you add to that the endorphins that get released. And ideas and thoughts, I do my best thinking, and I get my best ideas when I run. And in fact, the challenge is this happens frequently. I don't bring a pen and piece of paper with me when I run. And some days you get these runs that are so productive mentally that I'm trying to remember, okay, there's four really good ideas I've got, and I'm trying to think of tricks in my head so I don't forget them by the time I get back to my car. And it's, oh, now well, there's five good ideas that I got. It. Okay, so how am I going to arrange those so I don't forget? So that's between how it makes me feel physically and then what it does for me mentally. That's really why I'm so passionate about it. Even though I get slower and slower at it, you know, I'm not a good runner. But man, I I get just as much out of it now as I did when um uh, when I was when I was younger. In fact, one of the jokes about being a slow runner is they would say this about kids like they ran cross country in high school. They would say, "Well, the slow runners just get more playing time." <laughs> um, 
You mentioned in goal setting, if you if you miss a goal and things, you don't really dwell on it. Um, you know, it's just reset it for the next year and try to hit it harder and things like that. But uh, do you have a favorite failure? Um, and by that, I just mean one that uh, at the time maybe seemed uh, tough or um, hard to overcome, but it set you up for something better later on. Boy, that's a great question, and I do. I have a bunch of them. I've got a, I'm drawing a blank right now, but that's something, again, I talk to my kids about a lot because um, it, it is through those failures. Well, here's a great example. You know, when, when I was at Mass Mutual, um, I was failing. Working on commissions, you know, my, um, I, my, I think it was my fifth year I had my best year ever. And I thought I had made it. I thought I had turned the corner. And, and, and they always said, you get through that fifth year, um, your renewals are going to be at a point, and you're going to have a network and, and prospects. And so I hit that fifth year, and I really thought I had made it. And my sixth year was a disaster. And I get into my seventh year, and, you know, when, when you're an adult at that point, and I had five kids, and I was, I, I, I could barely buy food for my family. We, could, we were always behind on our bills. I was always concerned about our house being foreclosed on. I mean, our kids remember, their memory of that time period was us being very, very poor. Um, they didn't have new clothes to wear. They were teased at school. They would have... Um, <laughs> You know, peanut butter for for dessert. My wife would tell them she'd give them a spoonful of peanut butter and tell them that that was dessert, and that was. Uh, um, or she'd buy a can of whipped cream and have them sprayed in their mouth like they were birds, and, and put a cherry in and call it call it an ice cream sundae. You know, so it was a big struggle at that point. But I did not want to quit because quitting that meant I failed. And this idea of taking a job in a home office was devastating to me. And I was really concerned because I had been working for myself, working, you know, I was self-employed when I worked with my dad and then working at Mass Mitchell, I worked for myself. And this idea of having to go into a home office, into a corporate structure where you got a boss and you got a fixed income, those are all the things that we laughed about everybody else when we sold insurance. And so it was, for me, it was a big, big failure for me to admit to myself, I'm not going to make it at Mass Mutual. I don't have any choice. I got to support my family. I got to go into Unity Mutual and I got to take this job. And that was a failure in my head at that time. I really struggled with that. And it turned out to be, I mean, it set my, as I mentioned, opportunities with three more zeros. It allowed me to really emphasize my building strength as opposed to my selling weaknesses. And it opened up the ability for me to get to where I am today and, and the things that I've learned from that. So um, that I think was a really great example of a failure turning into something that was a success. Because, I mean, it sounds obvious now when I say that. It's really hard for me to convey, though. That was devastating for me to, to admit that I couldn't do that. And I had a, I had a client base. To go to those people and say, hey, I'm not going to be able to take care of you anymore. I'm taking this other job. 
I mean, you talk about abdication of responsibility. It really was hard for me to accept that. Um, as uh, you mentioned your kids' ages and things like that, as they were growing up, did any of them want to do insurance, or um, did they all pick a different route? Um, they've all picked something different, and I've, you know, I've told them. It's like, you know, um, I, I joke with them and say the reason they haven't gone into insurance is because they've always had other opportunities, <laughs> unlike me, because nobody chooses it. But I, I, I keep telling them, you know, as you guys know, you know, most people don't choose the insurance industry, but it's a great industry, whether in the home office or in the field. You know, you talk to people that have done this for their careers, and it's a great way to make a living. So um, my message to my kids, based on my career, is keep it. Life, there's a path that life has in mind for you. There's, there's a path that you're going to go to, go through. And your life is going to take you that way whether you want to go there or not. And the trick is to keep your eyes open to the opportunities that life is presenting to you. you know, you've got to have goals and you've got to have a vision of where you want to go. But you can't become so myopic that you ignore and reject out of hand other opportunities because it doesn't fit with what you think you want. And so my message to my kids is always been not insurance, but you've got to be looking for the opportunities that life is presenting you. And it's like to me, when it's kind of like you're, you know, life is like going down through the, you're going down a river. And when you're fighting the current and you're clawing to go a particular way, when the current's trying to take you another way, you're getting all bruised and banged up on the rocks and things like that. And sometimes you're better off just laying back and letting the current take you where it's going to go because, in my experience, it took me places I did not want to go, and they were a hell of a lot better than the places I thought I wanted to go. And I would never have seen that if I didn't have a choice or if I wasn't open to change. So you you mentioned that uh, it's it's hard to set goals and you're you're pretty content with uh, you know where your life is going right now and and how it is. Um, contentment versus drive seems to be uh, of opposing views. So uh, what drives you to to do the the things that make you productive and then also what brings you contentment. Oh, that's another really good question. Um, that's a hard one to answer. Um, I, I'm going to start with contentment because right now, um, as I said, I'm 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 really content. I enjoy my job. I don't like being gone as much as I am, but um, it makes my wife and I really appreciate the time that we are together way more. And when I am on the road, we have a habit now where we actually, in some ways, we talk more when I'm on the road than when I'm home because um, she'll call me in the morning when she's on her way to uh, work and we'll talk and then we'll talk every night. Whereas at home, there's always a lot of other things going on. Um, right now, I enjoy my job and I enjoy, I feel very fortunate. I've been married to my wife for almost 35 years and I can honestly say there isn't another person that I want to spend time with more than with her. I mean, I just really enjoy for her and I in the evening to just sit together and have a cocktail and sit outside on the deck um, or read while she's doing, she's a teacher, so while she's grading papers and, and I read or something, um, I really enjoy that. And then on the weekends, being in my garage working on my projects, those things really make me content. 
And in terms of the drive to do those or any other things, you know, it's really funny. I wouldn't even use the term drive. I'm not driven to run. I do it because I really enjoy running. I'm not driven to do a better job at my, in, in my job or to grow the LIC. I do it because I enjoy it. I'm not driven to be a better father or a better husband. It's just something I enjoy doing. I'm not driven to try to improve my Spanish. It's something I enjoy doing. So it's, it's kind of like my contentment um, has replaced that drive. All the things that I had to push myself to try to, to – to, to get better at, I kind of reached this point where, you know, I, I can certainly improve my Spanish. My, as I said, I'm far from fluent, and I could spend a lot more time improving my Spanish, being more grammatically correct, expanding my vocabulary, and just practicing more so that it flows more out of my mouth. But you know what? I've got great relationships, even with my rudimentary Spanish, and I have great conversations with people in Spanish, and I don't see that improving significantly because I was driven to go and try to push up to that next level, you know? Um, so anyway, I, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's something, honestly, I've been struggling with for the last couple of years because it's so contradictory to who I've been my whole life. I've always been driven, and I've always been very goal-oriented, but i got to say, right now, I'm doing all the things that I really want to do, and I'm not driven to do them. I do them because I'm content doing them. And you know what? I can't think of anything else, given the amount of time I have in every day. I can't think of anything else I would rather be doing than exactly what I'm doing right now. And I feel kind of weird, but I have to apologize for it. But <laughs> um, it doesn't sit right with me. You know, like that's not who I've always been. But at this point in time, i got to say, you know, if um, – if I had nothing else to do but just sit and hang out with my wife all day, for the time being, I'd be happy with that, honestly. Um, I think that's a good thing. That's awesome. Uh, congratulations on 35 years, by the way. Thank ha- you. Have you heard of uh, Duolingo? Is that the um, um, it's a language study program? Yeah, it's, a, it's an app. It, uh, you just yeah. kind of play the game and uh, happen to learn Spanish as a byproduct, it, I don't know. It, and they do lots of other languages, too, but I thought you might want to check it out. Yeah, I, you know what I did that really helped a lot? This is it, I'm going to try to keep this story quick so I know we're running, running out of time. But I, um, when I was at Unity Mutual, there was a, um, I worked late a lot, and there was a woman that was cleaning the building, and uh, she was obviously Hispanic. And um, so at that time, I was really trying to practice my conversational skills. And the only way you can do that is talking to people. So I would actually follow her around while she was emptying the garbage and talk to her in Spanish so I could practice. And it was kind of a joke because I would actually run and get some of the garbage cans, and she would get things. I didn't want her to get in trouble. You know, she had to keep working. Um, So eventually I got more comfortable with her, and I asked her, I said, listen, um, Kenya, I'll pay $25 if I can come to your house this weekend and just sit and talk to you for an hour because I need to practice my Spanish. And um, she thought I was nuts. She said, okay. (laughs) And so um, I went over there on a Saturday, and I was there for three hours. And it was exhausting for me. (laughs) I mean, because she didn't speak English. And so he had no fallback. And it was just, I mean, mentally draining. But I got to know, I mean, she came here from Cuba. I got to learn so much about how hard it is to come here from another country 
how hard it is to, to, to be here when you give up all of your family, all your support structure. She was a biology teacher in Cuba, so she's very educated, but she's cleaning buildings at night. She, you know, the, you perceive a lot of these people. You think that they're uneducated because they're working menial jobs and they're they don't they can't communicate. But they're often highly educated, and they they left good jobs, they left all their friends, all their family, and they left um, all of their culture, all the things that are familiar with them, to come here with no safety net because they wanted to provide a better life for their kids. And it just and then you hear about their perception of how hard it is to make it in the United States. And if you have any level of patriotism, you, you can't help but think, no, not in my country. I want to do whatever I can to make sure that, you know, everything that you gave up for your kids is worth it. And so this was this was probably two thousand and five. So we're still really good friends. I'm the godfather to a couple of her kids. I've been to Cuba and met her family. I got some great travel stories from going there. And it just has opened up all of these opportunities. And even to this day now, she speaks English. She's actually working as a teaching assistant full-time in a school. Uh, I was just over visiting her over the holiday weekend, and she still insists on just speaking Spanish with me. But that was probably the best thing I ever did for my Spanish, and, and, and the whole reason why I wanted to learn a language, because it opened up this whole other world to me and knowledge and insight that I just would not have had otherwise. And in the process, I had no, no, um, no recourse, but it gave me great motivation to improve my level of Spanish. I wanted to understand what she was telling me. That's awesome. I love that story. Um, it, and it brings up another perfect question, but um, how do you ask questions? There, I mean, we have to do it um, kind of to sensitive topics in the home and asking for people's you know, social security numbers and bank account information and things like that. But um, how do you find yourself uh, perfecting the art of asking a question? I think the best way to do it, um, and, and I'm not always able to do this, but my, my object, objective when, I, when I'm talking with somebody, when I'm at my best, um, one of the things, I, I did a, a bunch of um, seminars and training classes on this when I was younger, and the premise is basically oftentimes when we're talking to people, we're spending more time in our heads, thinking about what we think about what they're saying, you know, whether we approve, whether we don't approve, um, how we want to respond to it. We're, we're thinking about what we think about what, what they're saying instead of really just trying to get what it is people are telling us without judgment, without thinking of a response, just solely wanting to understand what they're saying to you. And I find when I'm at my best and I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm in that moment and I'm just trying to react to what they're telling me so that I can understand it better. And the, all, the best way I can put it is something that when, you know, you know how every business has a mission statement? Mm -hmm. I think every person should have a mission, a mission statement. And, I, and, again, I went through a bunch of seminars and training on this back in the 90s, but it had a, a dramatic impact on me. And one of the things, one of the exercises we went through was coming up with a mission. And what I came up with back in the 90s still, for me, is true today, and it's still something I strive to do when I'm, when I'm interacting with people. And that mission was to be a space that people can step into 
to find their own greatness. And the, the point behind those words, that whole thing about being a space for people to step into, was removing yourself, your opinions, your personality, your ego from the interaction and just being a space for people to step into, to be who they are, to show you who they are, to, uh, to say to you whatever it is that they want to say, and you just get it. And then to be that space for them to step into, to find their own greatness, then your response is only really to help them get to wherever it is that they want to go from there. Not what, telling them what you think they need to know or telling them what you think they should do, but just trying to get who they are and trying to figure out how to help them get to where they want to go. And, again, do I ever do that? No, no. But that's the mindset when I'm at my best that I try to approach the question-asking process um, and and having it come from them, not from my own head. And, you know, if you guys do public speaking, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go in the dresser room and you've got your handwritten notes and you've memorized the talk, your your whole presentation is in your head. And it may sound great to you, but you're not going to connect with anybody. And if you're addressing a room, if you throw all that stuff out, you kind of know what you want to say, but you get your presentation from the listening of the people in the room and you're connecting with them, you're hitting the ball out of the park in those situations. So uh, given what you know now and and where you're at in life, if you could go back to um, the Jeff right out of college, what advice would you give him? Oh, God. Well, it wouldn't matter because the Jeff that I was out of college, I knew everything, and I was so arrogant, I wouldn't have listened to uh, anybody anyway. In fact, it's kind of funny. I I see this with my wife and I talk a lot about this, you know. Um, Jim, I'm sure you see, you and I have talked some about this, you know. It's like just just by virtue of living, you know, a certain number of years, you know, every decade, you do get a little smarter. When you're in your 30s, you're smarter than when you're in your 20s. And you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I was pretty dumb back then. And then when you're in your 40s, you look back at your, who you were in your 30s, and you had the same conversation. So now I'm almost in my 60s. I can even look back at my 50-year-old self and say, yeah, I know a lot more now than I did. And I look at my kids now that are in their 30s, and I think, you know, I know so many things now that I didn't know then that I really wish I would have known, but there's no way I can tell them because you, the only way you figure it out is to make those mistakes or to learn from experiences or to figure it out yourself. So um, I don't know. if I, I don't know what I would say to myself at 20, and I can't figure out what to say to my kids. When they want my advice, I'm really happy to give it to them, but that's when they're interested in knowing well, other than that, man, it's really hard to, uh, to, 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 to share whatever wisdom you may think you have acquired unless somebody is really interested in asking for it. Let me ask you a little harder question then. Uh, if, uh, if you could meet with your 80-year-old self who's you know, retired and, and hangs out with his wife all day, uh, what do you think your 80-year-old self would, would give you for advice now? Yeah, you know, that's that's a great question. And it's funny, I will say this might sound morbid, but this is something that my wife and I think about and talk about a lot. And the reason is because, um, uh, again, Jim went through this with uh, his mother-in-law. So, you know, as my parents aged um, and then subsequently passed away, my wife and I spent a lot of time with them. 
went through this whole process of moving them out of their house, getting them into a nursing home, visiting them every day, watching their deterioration, watching them become more like children, and then ultimately passing away. My wife's mother passed away that same year that they did, and watching now her dad, we just moved him into an assisted living center, watching his slow and steady decline. And so we think a lot and talk a lot about our 80-year-old selves because I got to tell you, um, I don't know what the 80-year-old me is going to say, but I can look at how I imagine that 80-year-old person to be based on what I've seen from my in-laws and my parents, and I do not want to be that person. <laughs> Who would want? I mean, the reward for a long life is you end up wearing diapers and not being able to bathe and take care of yourself. Oh, my God. I, I feel my wife and I have a running joke. It's like, you know, whoever dies first is going to be really, really tragic for the other person. I agree. They have to console themselves with the fact that the person that dies first wins. That's right. Because if you don't go through that slow, steady, humiliating decline, you know what? Um, I have, and I, I'm sure I'll feel different. The, the, the will to live is so strong. But I got to tell you, you know, I look at people that die younger you know, in their 70s or 80s or whenever, before that decline starts, and I think they're lucky. Sue and I have decided that um, when we see that decline start, <clears throat> we're going up in an airplane, we're going to do some skydiving and leave the parachutes in the plane. We're just going out together. Yeah. 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 I mean, we talk about stuff like that. You're absolutely right. Um, will we do it? I don't know. But I agree <laughs> with you. That certainly seems... Um, like a better alternative than just sitting and waiting to die. And it's, and, and it's not, it's no fault of, of these people. You just mentally and physically just don't have the capacity to, to, to deal with it anymore. You know, we can look at it now and say, well, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep challenging myself. Well, your brain doesn't always cooperate and, and your body certainly doesn't. That's true. Yeah. I don't know if that makes me weird or not, but I'm going to be 30 here this summer. And I, I brought the same topic up with my wife that, hey, one of us is going to have to bury the other. And she's like, oh, my God, I never thought about it. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, yeah. I don't know if it's because the people I work with or what, but, you know, this is not uh, is not a mystery. Um, but uh, we're about coming up on time here. But uh, I've got a few quick draw questions. Um, your answers definitely don't have to be quick, but hopefully my questions are a little bit quicker. Before we get into those, you mentioned um, one of your favorite things is uh, sitting on the back tr- porch with a cocktail what's your favorite or go-to cocktail uh well it, it depends um see, i go through this is another it should have been a, a simple guy. question but since i travel so much um i uh, did not want to look back i didn't want to retire and look back at all the cities i was in and found that i just spent every night sitting in a hotel bar having dinner so i tried to find ways to, to motivate myself to get out of the hotel and get out into the city. And so um, there's no fun having a great meal when you're by yourself. So I didn't want to go to great restaurants. So I would pick places that had, like, a really, really good beer selection. And I got through. I've tried every type of beer ever made for the most part, um, numerous different types. And so then I would try different wine places. And I drank all these different types of wine. And then I got into scotch. And I tried all different types of scotch. And then I got into cocktails. And I would come home from these cocktail, uh, from these business trips, and I would buy 
the different types of, you know, these really obscure liquors and mixers and things like that. And I would try all these different recipes. In fact, my youngest daughter, when she went to Australia, she worked as a bartender. I kind of corrupted her. I would come home and she and I would start um, trying to make drinks together. So I have the most amazing liquor cabinet um, in my house. But like all things, you know, my drive has kind of gone away and now I'm in the the stage of contentment. And so I um, have all this stuff. My daughter's always mixing up all these really complicated things. And I just want a tangeray and tonic. Um, takes me two seconds to make, and I'm pretty happy with that. I've tried all the different cocktails. Um, I still I'll have a beer. I like, uh, I like uh, different types of uh, Belgian-style beers and stuff like that. And I like different scotches and rums. But for the most part, I'll just, my wife likes wine, and I'll have a gin and tonic. And in the winter, maybe I'll make a Manhattan instead. Awesome. Um, books. What's your, do you have any go-to books that you gift to other people or any books that you've read multiple times? Um, I, the books that I've read multiple times are mostly when I was younger and they were mostly, um, fiction books. Um, I buy books for people all the time. I read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, you know, on Amazon, You've got, like, the address list. I My address list literally is probably 100 people. Wow. I'll be in a restaurant, and I'll talk to a waiter, and they'll be interested in something, and I will have read a book about it, and I'll get their address, and I will, and true story, I'll send them a book. So people I'll meet in a business meeting will mention something because I've read I read a wide range of, of books, and so when I talk to somebody and they mention that they're interested in something, I really enjoy doing that. You know, sending a book to somebody is 10 or 15 bucks. It doesn't really cost anything. Amazon makes it really, really easy to do. Um, so it's something you can do that gives an appearance of being very thoughtful and considerate, and it is, but it doesn't really require a lot. And so I do that all the time, literally. The people I just meet, I'll send books to them. Um, lately, though, I have... A, I've started doing something different, which I've been uh, uh, pretty happy with. I subscribe to a lot of different um, news consolidation things. And since I've got a lot of interest, I've got, like, science um, uh, blogs that I subscribe to, and I've got a lot of woodworking ones and politics, economics, business, all kinds of things like that. And so there's all kinds of, like, long articles that are on the Internet, way more than you could possibly read. And there's an app that I have on my phone. It's called Pocket. And the thing that's so great about it is every time I see an article that looks like it might be something I might want to read, but I don't really have time at that particular moment, I'll save it to pocket. And what it does is it allows you to access this stuff when you're offline. And so when I'm on a plane, which I am almost every week, I'll have a couple of hours of uninterrupted time to go and then start going through these articles. And I'll read sometimes 30 of them on a flight. And there'll be a why, I mean, just it's at the breadth of what I'm reading about. Like I said, it covers all these different kinds of topics. And it's, it, to me, it's almost mind-blowing. And I really am enjoying that now. In fact, unfortunately, I've been doing a lot. It's harder for me to keep up with all of those than it is for, to even to find time to, um, uh, to read uh, books as much as I used to. Um, although I still, I still do. Do you have any uh, specific morning rituals that you do on a daily basis, uh, whether you're traveling or whether you're at home? 
Yeah, I do, actually. I'm not a morning person. I mean, that's why getting up at 4 in the morning and writing that book was such a huge accomplishment for me because I don't function very well in the morning, and I recognize that. And it's kind of funny. Uh, I was talking to my daughter about this, my youngest one, because she's not either, and she has to uh, be to work some morning at the 7 o'clock in the morning. And she's like, you know, gee, she drags herself out of bed at, like, 20 to 7, jumps in the shower, and then jumps in the car and leaves. And Tell me how hard it is. And I said, you know, this may be counterintuitive. I had the same problem. I find if you get up an hour or two earlier, you can ease into your day. Get up, get a cup of coffee. Um, I have a digital version of the paper, or I'll read, um, again, the stuff from my pocket or a book or something like that. Like, you know, get up earlier and give your time, yourself time to ease into your day, that's better for a non-morning non person. Don't spend that time in bed because it's just too difficult to jump out of bed and attack the day. I can't do it. So, yeah, I get up early. I get up between 5 and 5.30 every day, and um, I usually get in the office between 7 and 7.30, and I stay on Eastern time no matter where I am. So if I... Um, I'm getting up at 5.30, for example. If I'm in Central Time, I'll get up at 4.30. If I'm in Mountain Time, it'll be 3.30. Um, I usually will not be any earlier than 3.30. If I'm in Pacific Time, I'll kind of stop it there. Um, but I find it's easier to stay in the same time zone when I'm traveling. If I'm only going to be there for a couple of days, it's too disruptive to come back and have to adjust again. But that's my morning routine, basically. Get up early, have a cup of coffee, and do as little as possible until I absolutely have to go and face the day. <laughs> uh, what about evening before bed? Is there any rituals or things that you do before you shut the light out? No, I generally read in bed at night, though, every night uh, before I go to sleep. I find it helps me uh, go to sleep. But, no, I don't have any, any rituals in terms of um, of eating anything or anything like that, no. Do you have any quotes, uh, sayings, mantras, anything like that that you keep around as a constant reminder? No. I mean, some of the things that I've thrown out at you today would probably be those. I mean, I, I really, if, if there were one, it would be about life is a journey, not a destination, because I really try to remind myself of that. You know, when you're when you're going through your day, it takes effort to remind yourself to enjoy being in that moment of exactly what it is that you're doing. Um, and it helps if you're doing something that you don't particularly like doing, helps remind yourself that you're in that moment, and that moment is only a moment. It's going to pass. And so um, I, it probably more than anything, that's kind of, a, like I said, I like what you said about cliches. The reason why cliches got that way, because they're true, uh, for me that one certainly is. Um. What is one to two things that uh, people could do in the next week or two that would have a drastic impact on their lives? Yeah, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that because, again, it would really all depend on what it is that they wanted to do. Um, kind of in keeping with what I was saying before, I'd have to know what they wanted to do <clears throat> to be able to even answer that. Well, I, mean, I certainly don't have any. What's worked for me doesn't mean it would work for somebody else. Sure. We'll take it a little different direction. What's one experience you think that everybody should try at least once? Well, we, uh, we've uh, encouraged, for me, um, we've encouraged my kids to do this. The most life-changing, one of the most life-changing things for me was um, was going to India. And um, but it, it could be traveling outside of our country 
to another country that is not like ours. So that would not, you know, Europe is a good start because it's certainly, it's very different. But India is about as different from the United States as I can imagine. But going somewhere where you're outside of your comfort zone, where you look different from the rest of the people, where you don't speak the language, where the food is different, the way they live is very, very different. You are totally outside of your, your comfort. And you're very conspicuous in terms of you're the outsider. And it is so important to have that experience. You don't necessarily get that. You go to Europe, you know, they might know you're an American. But you really need to go to more of a third-world country and, and not in a tourist area and not with a tour, not at a resort, but out where people actually live and work. And you are forced to interact with them. And I think that's the most important thing anybody can do. Um, it's just you, you can't imagine. You can't imagine how different the rest of the world is from here unless you go there. And as I said, going on a tour or going to a resort or an all-inclusive or anything like that does not tell you anything. You really need to get out and, and live and with people in a different country, a different culture, where you don't know what the heck is going on. You don't know the protocol. You, you don't know what the norms are. You're the one making mistakes, being embarrassed, um, not understanding. Um, it's a really uncomfortable experience, but it's really important. You mentioned there's a bunch of, of good resources and, and things where you find articles for Pocket and stuff like that. Are there any ones that you find checking often or recommending to other people? No, and not really because, again, it depends on what they're interested in. So as I'm talking to someone, they have a particular interest in a particular topic, and I, and I happen to subscribe to something that kind of addresses that. Um, but I'll give you an example. Like one, of them, uh, one of my sons is an architect. And one of them is a graphic designer. So there is um, one um, a daily blog. It's a consolidated service that I subscribe to called Medium. And one of their um, topics that they include um, every couple of days uh, different articles on is in, in the area of design. And I will frequently will forward those articles to my, my two of my sons. And there's another one on programming. I have a son-in-law that's a programmer, software engineer. So I will uh, forward articles to him about uh, programming because um, of things that he might not otherwise, otherwise uh, be aware of. And um, so far, that seems to work out pretty well. They, you know, I try to be very careful about what I send to people. Because um, I have a hard time keeping up with what I've got to read, and I don't want to send on a whim something to somebody. It's just one other thing that you need to look at. So um, I try to have enough discipline so my kids know that if I send something to them, it's probably because I think it's something that they will be interested in, and they usually do me the courtesy of checking it out. Cool. I've got one more question that I want to save for the very end, but uh, where can people find more about you? Are you on social media or anything like that? Um, no. Um, I, my wife and I used to be on Facebook. We got off from it a couple of years ago, and I'm really, really glad that we did. Um, I am on Twitter, but uh, my Twitter handle is no name because um, I had gotten hacked a couple of times, and that really annoyed me. And I don't post anything on Twitter. To me, that's one of my favorite news consolidation sites because I don't follow people for the most part. I follow different publications. 
And so I can follow science and, and woodworking and politics and economics, all those things that I find interesting. Um, I can follow different publications or experts in that area, and it's just like drinking out of a fountain hose. There's just a wealth of information, but there's no there's no um, recognition of me there. I have a LinkedIn account, but I use that more as my it's like a, a digital Rolodex because I meet so many people. This is a great way for me to remember them, so that when I'm traveling back to a particular area, I kind of will go there if I'm traveling to. Uh, Topeka, for example, I'll pull this up and I'll see who I who I know in that area that I might be able to go visit because I just can't I can't remember everybody. So, um, other than that, um, that's about it. Um, but very very glad that I'm not on Facebook anymore. Very <laughs> glad. So they can just find you at the the LIC, the Life Insurers Council, right? Oh uh, well, yeah, um, yeah, they. Um, uh, people can contact me through LinkedIn, I guess, if they have to. But I'm not really interested in expanding my network beyond what I'm already like. What I do for work is is fine, but on a personal level, you know, I'm not really interested in, in having a real strong presence out there. Quite honestly, um, I'd rather I'd rather be under the radar. Um, there's just too much too much downside and not enough upside, I think, to having a real high, highly visible virtual presence. I get it. I get it. So um, we we really appreciate the time of you being on here. Uh, but before we go, what would you like for your personal legacy to be? <laughs> how do you how do you throw that out there as the final question? <laughs> Got to save yeah. it for last. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, I don't really know exactly how to answer that, but I do feel that you know whatever perception and stories, my kids and grandkids, you know, whatever impression I've, I've left with them, um, that's going to be my legacy, I think. And I have no idea, you know, I don't, they don't know, you know, when we're all alive and interacting, you don't really think about stuff like that. But I would say that's where we're going to find out whatever my kids and my grandkids ultimately say about me and pass on to their kids. But let's not forget, you're good for, we're good for two generations usually. You know, how much do you know about your great-great-grandfather, you know? Yeah. Um, oftentimes, we don't even know their names. So uh, best I can hope for is whatever impression I might make on my kids and my grandkids, and maybe my grandkids will tell their kids about me. But that's about the extent of my legacy. Well, that's awesome. Again, thanks for the time. I'm, I'm sure I'll have to come up with some questions for a round two. This has been super interesting. Jeff, thank you so thank much. Thank you. I re- I really appreciate it. As I said, I'm very honored and flattered that you would give me this time, and thank you. Your legacy is going to be amazing. I don't question that for a minute. <laughs> Thanks. All right, you guys, have a, have a great one. I look you forward too. to seeing you soon. All yeah. right, we'll see you. Great talking with you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Stop by com. That's the number one, A-N-D-D-O-N-E, training.com. There you'll find our blog, media library, and ongoing training to help with your final expense career. Thanks. We'll see you there.